The Lead Story is proudly brought to you by Alex Forbes. Alex Forbes, insight, advice, impact. In tonight's Lead Story on the Business Report, I'm speaking to Ms. Kitty McGear, who's written a briefing paper called The Global Cost of Living Crisis from a Namibian Perspective. Good evening, Ms. McGear. Good evening. Thanks for having me on the program. So maybe to start off, uh, just for our listeners, if you could give us a, a quick background about, about yourself. Uh, yeah, sure. So um, if you can't already tell from the accent, I'm not originally from Namibia. Um, I actually grew up between the UK and the US, um, but first came to Namibia in 2016 um, while studying um, for my bachelor's. Um, and then went on to do my master's um, at SOAS University of London, where I specified um, my studies on Southern Africa and uh, subsequently did my thesis on the role of Namibian labor unions. Um, I moved to Namibia right in uh, the middle of the pandemic in 2020 and um, started working for IPPR as a research associate. Um, and I've been with IPPR for around two and a half years now. Right. So uh, that yeah, that's me. So uh, as you said, the IPPR there, uh, the briefing paper, also with the help of the Hans Seidel Foundation, uh, and as we said, yes. the global cost of living crisis from a Namibian perspective. Just to sort of get us into the topic, uh, I mean, everyone has a a bit of an idea of how we got into the situation, but how exactly did we get into the situation? <laughs> Yeah, so um, there's a general consensus that there is sort of two main um, causative determinants of, of the crisis. Uh, the first being um, the kind of prolonged economic fallout of COVID-19. Um, and the second being the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, so these two events really were quite unprecedented in the sense that they were, their impact was so global, um, particularly their impact on global market um, supply and demand. Um, uh, for example, the Russia-Ukraine war, both of those countries um, have a huge market share, global market share of like key commodities, um, things like oil, wheat, gas, etc. Um, so those um, those geopolitical, geopolitical conflicts um, caused real disruptions to global food and energy markets, and this is sort of filtered down to the national level. Um, just a third um, a third factor that kind of less considered factor, but in my view, equally um, as consequential, has been this sort of um, corporate profiteering we've been seeing, um, uh, whereby some corporations have sort of been taking advantage of that, uh, of this high inflationary environment by artificially increasing their uh, their prices um, so as to protect their own profit margins. And what this has ended up doing is kind of passing the costs of the crisis onto regular consumers. Um, and just to mention, this isn't, you know, <laughs> this isn't just a sort of political talking point, that third factor. Even the IMF uh, came out in June of this year to acknowledge that uh, corporate profits accounted for almost half the increase in inflation seen in Europe over the past two years. Sure. Um, I, I know this is sort of outside the scope of your paper, but uh, I read an article this morning talking about how the situation 
in Palestine at the moment in, in Gaza is already impacting the economies of the surrounding countries. Uh, do you see that actually having a global impact as well in the way that the Russia-Ukraine conflict has? I think certainly, um, especially if we see the conflict, um, you know, expanding, for, you know, if we see different different regional actors, whether state or non-state getting involved, then, you know, the Middle East is, of course, such a critical region, um, you know, again, for global, global market uh, supply. Um, if we do see other countries getting involved, which, you know, as, as it's escalating, looks more and more likely than absolutely, I do think. Um, it could have an effect. Okay. So we're looking at things like uh, a few food prices and fuel prices. Uh, and it looks to to us here in Namibia that, I mean, this is, it's pretty much an imported crisis. We talk about inflation spiraling, but it's not because Namibians are, are, are sort of just spending. Uh, yesterday, thankfully, we saw the Bank of Namibia keep the rate, uh, the repo rate unchanged. But how much can we actually do to sort of, you know, mitigate this crisis if most of it is imported? Yeah, so um, I think definitely for a kind of an open economy like Namibia, um, we are so impacted by these global market developments that, you know, to a large extent, we can say that the crisis has been imported. Um, you know, so uh, talking about the Bank of Namibia hiking interest rates, for example, um, you know, this has been done, obviously, um, on the logic that um, these kind of uh, interventions could help manage inflation. Um, but, you know, some pundits have sort of argued that this is more to do with supply side issues relating to transport, food inflation, which, you know, obviously comes from the oil um, oil prices going up so much. Um, so at the same time, I think the worsening macroeconomic sort of environment um, has definitely been exacerbated to an extent by internal factors. So most notably, um, accumulation of high public debt um, before the crisis took hold. Um, so, you know, we can sort of look at that as well. Like, yes, it was imported, but the extent to which it ended up impacting uh, domestically I think that there are some, we do need to look at internal conditions um, as to why the vulnerable have been impacted so much. Okay. Talking of that sort of impact uh, and the scale of it, is that because locally we, we weren't really in a good place even before the current crisis? Yeah. So, um, I mean, in, you know, the inflation rate in Namibia, it's, it's not reached that sort of double or triple digit figure that we've seen in some of the world's worst faring economies. Um, at the same time, you know, we, the country was struggling with a lot of different, you know, socioeconomic challenges before beforehand um, that have really imposed limitations on how individuals and businesses can, you know, can cope and how they can adapt to withstand these added financial pressures um, brought forth as a result. So uh, I think one of the studies that um, we looked at uh, in the paper was data collected by Afrobarometer just as this crisis was starting to take hold uh, in October and November 2021. Um, and there they found that the proportion of Namibians suffering from frequent deprivation of basic life necessities 
um, had risen to encompass more than half of the population, and that's the highest levels recorded since 2006. Um, so, you know, these kind of outcomes, uh, of course, we know, you know, they're being driven by things like a lack of inclusive growth, um, you know, structural unemployment, inequality, all of these different factors, um, as well as high labor informality, which kind of collectively all of these different factors have meant that Namibians have been especially lacking in insulation to deal with, um, you know, the added adverse conditions brought on by the crisis. Mm. So, I mean, we know obviously the most uh, obvious, I think I've even mentioned it already in, in this conversation is food and fuel prices. Those have increased. What are the, some of the other ways though that the crisis has most affected Namibia? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, as you as you say, the rising inflation um, is definitely kind of the main thing that comes to mind when we're talking about this, about this crisis. Um, another thing that uh, I found particularly striking um, when we were conducting the research was uh, this increased personal debt um, due to increased dependency on uh, using credit just to make ends meet. Um, so... I think one of the reports that we looked at was from Bank of Namibia um, in 2022, which showed that uh, household debt servicing costs increased from 9% in 2020 to 17.8% in 2022. Um, and these types of findings, you know, have been corroborated um, by other surveys carried out by Old Mutual, um, which, you know, just generally found that thing, people buying things on credit is becoming much more normative. Um, and also the types of credit um, that people, um, credit services, services that people are um, engaging with, um, we're seeing a, a huge spike in the, in the number of Namibians becoming dependent on these unregistered micro lenders and short-term loan sharks to sort of try and temporarily offset some of these pressures. But of course, you know, with these really predatory loan rate um, interest rates that some of these providers, um, you know, impose uh, this kind of is continuing the cycle of increasing um, people's personal debt. Mm. So I'd say that's another another big one that we're seeing as a result. So we, I don't know if we've got uh, sort of specific studies and specific numbers, but I mean, anecdotally, I, I think everyone's sort of seeing anecdotally or, or hearing about an increase in unemployment, uh, the increase in poverty. Obviously, that sort of uh, ties into an increase in crime. Uh, has the government responded to mm -hmm. the crisis sufficiently or correctly? Um, so I think that... Uh I think, you know, to start with, so on top of all the existing provisions um, that were there already, um, I think we should acknowledge that uh, government didn't simply capitulate to slashing social protection and broader social sector funding, uh, as has tended to be the approach by other governments in the region and throughout the world uh, when the going gets tough economically. Um, instead, like, despite the hostile macroeconomic environment, um, government actually opted to preserve and in some cases even expand social protection. Um, so I do want to acknowledge that, um, you know, as, uh, you know, I, I, I celebrate that kind of response personally, but, um, you know, in, in, terms of, uh, in terms of whether it was sufficient to deal with the magnitude of the crisis, 
Um, I think one of the things we're trying to drive home in the report is that the efficacy of, you know, things like social protection, Namibia has quite a comprehensive social protection system relative to its peers in the region. Um, but what we're seeing is that um, these assistant programs, their benefits are being incrementally offset by the crisis, by these rising costs, um, you know, concurrent with wage stagnation. Um, and, you know, um, so how far, you know, these, um, these payments can really be stretched um, is under a lot of pressure. Um, and then, you know, in terms of how far the how far they can be stretched further, you know, that's being impacted by um, uh, the limited fiscal space that government still has, despite some recent um, improvements in revenues. I, I wanted to touch on that limited fiscal space because, I mean, if we look at, and, and like you say, rightly uh, praising government or, or acknowledging the fact that they didn't cut the spending uh, when times were tough, was government even in a position to respond better, though? Did You know, we didn't necessarily have a lot of money to throw at social grants uh, and sort of COVID uh, monetary allowances that, that other countries did. Yeah, um, we, we were definitely in a, le a lot less favorable position. Um, and I think that this is why we're seeing just on a global scale uh, uh, in income inequality individually and then just inequality on a regional um, on a regional level expand so much because obviously you know governments have such varying capacities to respond to these kinds of events. Um, but I mean, I've, I'm of the opinion that certainly more can always be done to explore different avenues for resource mobilization. Um, we have an issue with illicit capital flows in this country um, that I think more can be done to kind of um, rein that in. Um, of course, there has been some level of fiscal mismanagement um, whereby huge borrowing has been um, has been undertaken at the same time that expenditure has increased. Um, so, you know, um, but certainly like Namibia is less less than favorable economic position prior to the crisis has imposed limits on how government could respond. Um, you know, high public debt is definitely the biggest burden, but there, I mean, there, there's always more that can be done. I mean, what, what one of the things uh, that we touched on in the report was um, improving, you know, the efficiency of, of, of government expenditure. It's not a question of not spending enough, it's how that money's being spent. So uh, things like, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of a, a lot of roles in, in, in government in particular, um, I know some of my colleagues um, in civil society have already have already talked about, you know, getting rid of these kind of ceremonial positions like deputy minister, regional governor, which arguably are duplications of other roles. And they obviously take up a huge amount of um, of the public wage bill. Um, so certainly more can be done to, you know, sort of spread things around, find other ways to mobilize resources. So um, despite, you know, obviously there's been challenges, there's been limits, but certainly more can always be done. Speaking about uh, more being done, what are some of the recommendations uh, in the report to try and help mitigate the crisis? Yeah, so um, the report has five main recommendations, but just to touch on a couple, um, I guess uh, 
what I just mentioned um, in the previous response was generally improving the efficiency and productivity of government expenditure. Um, so again, um, finding ways to reduce the um, public sector wage bill, which still, you know, which still is set to take up just under 40% of, of expenditure this year. Um, so uh, that is definitely one key focus that I know that government has been, um, you know, definitely trying to um, double its efforts on, you know, we've seen um, money being taken away from um, public enterprises that are not performing as they should. So that's that's positive, but definitely more, um, more of that. Um, another way um, is just sort of attaching more more um, sort of performance-based conditions to uh, the funding that's being that's being received by different ministries, especially you know votes like education and health that are taking a huge percentage of the budget. I think it's reasonable for government to demand better outcomes than what we've been seeing in those areas. Um, of course, we all heard about, um, you know, the high failure rate of grade 11 and 12s, of whom only 24% ended up qualifying for tertiary education last year. Um, so I think, uh, you know, and and that's sort of being tied into the underinvestment in early childhood education and the, you know, sort of residual effects of that. Um, so, you know, demanding better outcomes, I think, um, is essential rather than just throwing money at the ministries. Um, you know, we, there's a huge amount that's spent on social sector funding. And I'm definitely not advocating cuts, but rather, you know, mechanisms. And this will, have, of course, need to involve more um, investment in monitoring and evaluation frameworks as well. Um, just uh, one more of the recommendations I'll just quickly touch on. Um, we are um, we are recommending um, more more investment in labor intensive agriculture. And uh, you know, I know this is we talked to quite a lot of economists um, for for this research, and definitely economists are are split on this on split on the potential of agriculture in Namibia. Of course, there's there's challenges with this due to you know, uh, difficult climate conditions and whatnot. Um, at the same time, I think that there are opportunities that are untapped. Um, so, you know, especially when it comes to these issues of, of food insecurity that we've really, we've really seen the full extent of during the crisis, you know, with, with as net import dependency. Um, we recommend that, um, you know, there's more investment, particularly in um, the productivity of smallholder farmers in northern communal areas. So, um, for example, I'm, you know, I, um, I'm visiting family in Katima at the moment. So regions like Zambezi, Kavango East, Kavango West, where the most fertile land is not being most optimally used, um, giving farmers more access to farming inputs, value addition, food processing technology, um, I think, um, I think could 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 be a game changer if if uh, if put in conjunction with other with other measures uh, with other reforms in other other areas. Um, so yeah, those are those are a couple of the recommendations from the report.
One of the things that, that I picked up was uh, the recommendation for the sort of implementation of a basic income grant. I know the president is opposed to a sort of across the board basic income grant, but why would you recommend that? What are the benefits of, of a basic income grant rather than a sort of the specific one or needs-based? Yes. So, um, yes. Um, so implementing a universal basic income grant as well as a universal trial grant so these types of interventions, um, the first, okay, so the child grant, um, it was actually government itself who um, first came up with uh, or advocated for the implementation of this initiative. Um, the former Ministry of Poverty or Education um, included a universal child grant and a once-off maternity grant in the draft version of the social protection published, uh, policy published in 2019. Um, but despite acknowledging that child grant amounts had significantly degraded um, as a result of inflation in the last few years and therefore were no longer sufficient to protect children from poverty, um, these interventions were for some reason not included in the final, um, in the final version of the report. Um, and this is, you know, of, of, uh, in the context of uh, stories that we've seen this year, 45 children in Omaheke region alone died of malnutrition in the first half of 2023. And so, so what we're saying is that these, these policy interventions, which were, you know, something the government advocated for a time itself, should be reinstated to the, to the policy in its current form. Um, so with regards to universal basic income more broadly, uh, uh, in the report, we, you know, um, yeah, we advocate it in the report. Um, you know, we first we first look at uh, we first explore whether a unemployment grant might be um, might be a more preferable option. Um, certainly, more politically expedient. I know there's a lot of narratives that are being thrown around that a basic income grant would make people lazy. Um, but this type of intervention, we think, would be quite um, untenable in practice, um, of course, due to the high rate of informality in the labor market. Um, so that sort of in introduces a lot of challenges administratively for determining who actually qualifies for an unemployment grant. So, for example, does somebody who is technically regarded as employed in subsistence agriculture but only receiving modest and very inconsistent earnings, would they be able to get this kind of support? So acknowledging these sort of issues, we recommend the Universal Basic Income Grant, which is self-targeting rather than means testing. Um, and I don't want to get maybe too much into the details of, um, of the grant, only because, um, you know, the Basic Income Grant Coalition, um, you know, led by the Economic Social Justice Trust, has produced so much content on its benefits and how this type of thing could be practically in implemented over the last, you know, um, almost two decades, I think. Um, but I will quickly mention that this is, you know, this isn't just a political initiative. Um, you know, we have real life evidence from a pilot study conducted in Ochibero in 2008. And this study has been used, you know, it's been used as a model throughout the world because it was so unprecedented um, about how this could benefit the population 
you know, in the, some of the some of the positive effects include included reducing child malnutrition, poverty, and crime. Um, increasing, you know, more people using this money to start their own businesses and, um, you know, self-employment and a general improvement in ca human capital development. Um, and it's worth mentioning that the president himself was behind the the, the, the big at this time um, in 2008. Um, <laughs> and just lastly, to, to address the most common rebuttal um, that, that people tend to bring up um, for why should people who were formerly employed with a comfortable income also receive these funds? The answer to that is they basically wouldn't. wouldn't. They would in the sense that everyone would receive this transfer to their bank accounts, um, but uh, income tax adjustments would be, would be also made alongside it to make sure that those earning over a certain income threshold would pay the big uh, would pay the basic income grant back through the tax system, you know, at progressive rates. Mm. So I know, as you're saying, that one is sort of there. There are different opinions on it. You you mentioned different opinions on uh, agriculture from different economists. And I know the one thing that that is recommended in the report uh, is implementing rent controls. That one also seems to divide economists. A lot of economists saying, you know, rent control stifles supply and, and that's what's causing our housing uh, crisis in Namibia. Uh, is the rent control portion or looking at that as part of this report more from a cost of living rather than a housing point of view? Yeah, certainly. Um, <laughs> I, th I think this, this part of the report in particular um, has received probably the most pushback. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, the, this argument uh, against rent control, I mean, I, I think it's safe to say that quite a lot of mainstream economists are, are against this. Um, uh, you know, on the basis that rent control would restrict housing supply, which, you know, is said to be counterproductive to affordability. Um, but I suppose what, what I'm talking about more here is more along the lines of rent stabilization rather than an, a hard ceiling on rent control, um, you know, implementing a hard ceiling in terms of a number. Um, so, yes, yeah, so like some some regulations I think should be imposed. Um, but at the same time, you know, reasonable rent increases, rent increases, I think, could still be allowed on an annual basis, but only in line with inflation. Mm. So uh, what would no longer be allowed, hopefully, if this rent control bill, um, you know, um, ends up being produced is, um, you know, exploitation of tenants by some private landlords who might be tempted to artificially increase rent prices to protect their own, you know, um, their own profits, which, you know, of course, landlords are also dealing with increased costs um, as a result of the crisis as well. Um, the difference is that tenants don't own any assets to, 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 to you know, to protect them um, in the same way that landlords do. Um, I think, you know, rent control doesn't necessarily have to be universally applied. It could be granted to certain low-income people or applied to buildings, um, certain types of buildings. So, for example, we could say uh, to, to address the housing supply issue, um, you know, to encourage developers to keep building houses that maybe rent control would not be applied to future construction, for example, um, but rather only existing housing, um, existing buildings would 
um, would have this applied. Um, and I guess uh, just a final point, I'm not advocating rent control as the key to the, to the crisis. I'm very aware that this is rather a near-time intervention to put a hold on displacement and give some sort of protections to tenants um, who are really dealing with, you know, I mean, here I think it's, you know, our, 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 our rent prices are, you know, much higher than Cape Town, where, you know, we very high, high, high cost of rent in this country. Um, but basically the argument is that it's going to take a lot more time to build the number of houses needed to meet the huge demand for, you know, rapid urbanization. And so, um, you know, rent stabilization measures could represent a temporary solution to some of these challenges. Um, if it's also accompanied by some conditions that would still encourage developers to keep building. Ms. McGear, I've, I've kept you much longer than I should have, and I've still got about a thousand other questions. But while we're talking about sort of interventions that are unpopular with economists, uh, should we say, I can't uh, resist sort of just throwing out the idea to you. Uh, is, I believe it was when he was Minister of Finance, uh, Kalish Letvain proposed a wealth tax. Is that something that, that was a scope of the report or that you looked at? Um, it's something we considered, but ultimately didn't include um, in this particular report, just because I think I think these kind of issues require a paper by themselves because, you know, they're they're so um, re relevant to this country, you know, with the with, with the huge wealth and income inequality that we have. I think a whole paper needs to be written on it. Um, but, um, you know, obviously the main main argument being um that wealth tax could help increase government revenue streams, um, you know, which is arguably essential given the structure of the economy, um, which, you know, a lot of our revenue streams are quite inconsistent in nature and constant, you know, in, in, in constant flux according to market developments. Um, but I think, you know, un, uh, unearned sources of wealth, especially assets um, that, were not inherited under fair, fair circumstances historically are obviously a key feature of the Namibian economy. So, you know, in, 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 in principle, I would strongly advocate for a wealth tax applied at progressive rates. Um, you know, of course, in practice, there there is obviously the question of whether the state has the administrative capacity to conduct, conduct proper valuation of people's wealth. Um, you know, and uh, there's of course a lot of avenues, a lot of loopholes out there for the wealthy to sort of underestimate the value of their wealth. Um, but I think these types of taxes, I think they, they, they deserve some more exploration um, in conjunction with, you know, stricter enforcement of, of regulations, regulations on tax evasion, you know, working with international institutions to help prevent wealth from being buried in tax, health, tax havens elsewhere. Um, so, yeah, and, and, and just bringing it back to, to the cost of living crisis, you know, we have seen this huge spike in economic inequality to levels last seen in 2008. And this is, you know, especially impacted um, the African continent. So, I mean, I, I think personally that this strengthens the case for interventions like wealth tax even more.
Ms. Mm. McGeer, thank you so much for your time. Uh, anyone who's interested and would like to read the briefing paper, The Global Cost of Living Crisis from a Namibian Perspective, uh, you can get it from the IPPR website. It's IPPR.org.na. Ms. McGeer, thank you so much. Thank you so much. The lead story was proudly brought to you by Alex Forbes. Alex Forbes, insight, advice, impact.